Grace Family Church of Rhode Island presents Word of Hope, a sermon series with Pastor Luciano Cozzi. Welcome. The Word of Hope sermon series is a ministry of Grace Family Church of Rhode Island. It was instituted to bring sound teachings from the Word of God to as many people as possible. Our purpose is to offer you a message that is both practical and contemporary, that brings the Word of God to light in a way that makes sense in daily life. As you listen to this message, it is our hope and prayer that the Lord will bless you through it and bring you hope, comfort, and guidance. And now, Pastor Kotze. Obviously, I don't need to say that we are going through some difficult moments. I don't need to say that we are sometimes discouraged by the things, the whirlwinds that life throws at us. And it is quite true. Sometimes we have this saying that basically reminds us that sometimes when it rains, it really pours. We don't need to be reminded of that either because we have constant reminders right in our life, right? But what happens is that sometimes we think of the people of God, we think of the big names of the Bible, we think of the people who clearly had a very strong relationship with God, didn't have to go through that. I would like for you to put yourself in the shoes of the disciples of the apostles here as we look at this passage today and we see what Jesus did and said to them and shared with them. They were bewildered they were discouraged. They felt like a whirlwind was really taking them away. Listen, just before these statements that we just read today, they were told that Jesus was going to go away. The rabbi, Messiah, the Lord, was going to go away. He, they were told that he was going to die. That one of them, one of the twelve, was a traitor. They were told that Peter would disown him three times, that Satan was at work against all of them, and that they would all fall away. Wow. Do you think they had a good time at that moment? They didn't. They were really down by then. And that's why Jesus told them, don't let your hearts be troubled. That's why he said that. That's why he made that statement, because he sensed, he knew, didn't just sense it, he knew that they really needed encouragement. So he told them, don't let your heart be troubled. And you might think, well, it, you know, Lord, it, it's easy to say that, not quite so easy to do, is it? How in the world can I not let my heart be troubled when you tell me that you're going to die, that one of us is a traitor, that Peter, that Peter is going to deny you three times, that Satan is at work against every single one of us, and that we are all going to drift away. Okay, thank you for the news, Lord. My heart is okay now. You see, they needed to be comforted by Jesus, and he gave them the reason for that comfort. So yes, he told them, don't let your heart be troubled. But he said, there is a reason for that. You already believe in God. The Greek in verse 1 of chapter 14 actually says, you believe in God. So, you know, the translation is, believe in God, believe also in me. 
But actually, the first statement is a statement, is an assertion, is a statement that confirms the fact that you already believe in God. But then, interestingly enough, at this passage, Jesus is making some absolutely amazing statements. He says, as you believe in God, believe in me. Translation, I am God in the flesh. And you can trust me. Because just like you know that the Father, that God is faithful to you, so I am as well. And you're not going to be abandoned. Notice what he says in verse 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. And then he says, if it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. Wait a minute. What does this mean? Why would Jesus, in a moment like this, when he had to tell them, don't let your hearts be troubled, is now talking about the Father's house? And we're going to miss the point unless we understand something about the tradition of those days. A bridegroom and a bride on their engagement day. A big celebration. A wonderful celebration, right? But then the bridegroom says, I go to prepare a place for you. And he leaves the future bride. That's not quite the engagements of today, is it? He leaves the future bride, and he goes to his father's house. And normally what they would do, they would be build an extension, either build a, another house on top of the father's house, so extended it vertically going up to the next floor, or extending next to it. But it would be in the land of the father. Generally speaking, they will build a house. And when the house is ready, the bridegroom would then go through the second stage of the ceremony. Go to his future bride and take her to his house. It's almost like saying, okay, here I have prepared for you, right? And now I take you in. And you're part now of my father's house. So if you think about that, if you think about that, uh, that tradition, if you think about what was going on there in Judea at that time, when Jesus was talking to the disciples and when he was explaining to them, don't let your heart be troubled as you believe in God, you can also, as you trust God, you can also trust me. It was just like the bridegroom talking to the bride and say, trust me, I am not going to abandon you. Trust me, I am coming back to get you. The promise of the engagement was now used for them to realize that Jesus Christ would not be gone forever, that Jesus Christ would be coming back to them and welcome them in their father's house and welcome them as his bride. And so there was a lot involved in that statement. There was much. The picture painted was a beautiful picture, was a wonderful, comforting, reassuring picture. Just like the bridegroom on the day of the engagement would make the promise to his future bride that he would come back for her. So Jesus made the promise to his disciples, yes, all sorts of things are happening. Yes, you are going to see me die. Yes, one of you is a traitor. Yes, Peter will deny me three times. Yes, Satan is attacking all of you. Yes, you will be scattered, but I will be back for you. A comforting thought. Now he said that he would come back and that they would know the way to God. He said, you know the way where I'm going. But of course, Thomas asked him, Lord, um, I have a little problem, he said. I don't have a clue where you're going. How do you expect me to know the way there? 
It's almost like someone jumping in the car in Thomas' eyes, right? You know, some, you, one of you jumping in the car and telling me, okay, you, can, you, you know the way to go where I'm going. I'm thinking, no, I have no clue where you're going, so how can I know the way, right? But Jesus did say that Thomas actually knew the way because here comes the next big statement of Jesus. Because he reminded his disciples, his apostles, with that phrase of who he is. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. No, Jesus is not a stuck-up individual. He's not some proud guy down the street who has this problem with thinking he's the the greatest guy in the world. He is God in the flesh who humbly, actually, proclaims who he is because we need to know that. And so he reminds us that the way is not some rule that we may set up. Okay, here I come up in the morning, I wake up and I come to the church and I say, okay guys, we have the perfect way today. Uh, Every single one of us from now on has to dress up in black because that's the way to God. Every one of us has to wear glasses like I do because that's the way to God. Every one of us has to watch, you know, have the same watch that I do because that's, how ridiculous is that? Well, we do hear, not quite that silly, I am exaggerating, but we do hear sometimes comments like that, right? I know the way to God, and the way to God is A, B, C, D. Well, let me reveal to you something about that. There's only one way to God, and you know that way, because that way is Jesus Christ himself. It is not a behavior. It is not a set of rules. It is not something that people will impose or not impose. It is not a tradition. It is not anything like that. That way is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ himself, the person of Jesus Christ. And so you want the way to God? Jesus says, come to me. Because as you come to me, you find God. He is the way. He is the truth. And not as he wasn't lying to them. Oh, the apostles would have loved to hear him say, Everything is going to be okay, guys. going to be a piece of cake. You're going to be just fine. Nothing to worry about. But he didn't say that, did he? Because that would have been a lie. But he is the truth in much more meaningful and deeper ways. In fact, he is the perfect expression of God himself. He is the perfect expression of the will and the truth of God. So if we know him, we also know the Father, he says, because they are one. So he says, from now on, you know him and you have seen him. Who? The Father. Why? Because they've seen Jesus. The Father is in Jesus, and Jesus is a perfect revelation of the Father. So here, what, what is Jesus saying to the disciples? What is he saying to the, to the apostles? You look for the Father. You look for God. You don't want to look for God outside of God. God has come to you to reveal himself to you in a way that you can understand, in a way that you can see, in a way you can relate to. We don't follow, we don't worship a God who's somewhere out there waiting for us to rise up to him, to be perfect, to be so good that we kind of almost float up in midair and rise up to him, right? No, he came down to us. He came down to us in our stinking world. He came down to us in our weaknesses. He came down to us in our sins. He came down to us in the filth of our attitudes and our behavior and our problems and our traditions and all the other junk that we have. He came to us to reveal to us something that we would never, ever 
be able to see or understand. And so here we have him. It's right there. And he says, you know, don't look for God outside of God. You don't need to go to the end of the earth to find God. You don't need to go to the highest mountains to find God. You don't need to go to the depths of the sea to find God. Just look at him because he came to you. And he revealed himself to you perfectly in a person of Jesus Christ and, and in a way that we can relate to. So Jesus reveals the Father perfectly because they are one. But notice also he says, the things that I do are not my things. <laughs> I look at that and I smile. I smile because I really will love for every minister, every pastor, every member of the body of Christ who is involved in doing something, in serving and ministering and so on, to really spend a month studying that statement. What Jesus is doing is not his own stuff. It's the Father's stuff. What Jesus is doing is not his own ministry. It's the Father's ministry. But of course, here we come up and we say, I got a better way. My way is the better way. Because of course, I have to publish books about it. I have to put videos out there about it. I have to set up seminars about it so that all the churches know how to follow God my way. Can you see how ridiculous that really sounds when you put it that way? Jesus himself did not do his own things. He did the Father's thing, the Father's work, and only what the Father told him to do. And Jesus says, the way I was sent by the Father, I am sending you to do what? Not your stuff, not your work, not your things, not your theories, not your programs, but my work. Just like the Father sent him, he has sent us. And so we, what do we say to him? Well, you know, my armchair is comfortable. So, Lord, if you really want me to participate in your work, you're going to kind of kick me out of my armchair. Watch what you're saying <laughs> and what you wish for. What if instead we said, Lord, here I am. I am confused. Sometimes I'm bewildered and discouraged by life, but I see you. And I know that I'm okay in you. Would you send me? Allow me to look at my life. Allow me to look at the people around me in a different way. Not the way I want them to see me, but the way you see them. Not the way that I'd like to be tickled in my pride, but the way you see them. With your love, with your compassion, with your grace, so that I can be an instrument of it. To do your work, what you do in their life, not my thing. Remember what Paul was inspired to write several times in his letters, that we have nothing to boast about except for one thing, Christ himself. So he sent us to do the work of the Lord, and then he said something that is so often taken out of context. He says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. And of course, people stop there. They usually stop right there, don't even finish the sentence, and say, okay, Lord, I ask it in Jesus' name, or better yet, in Jesus' name, right? <laughs> it's not a magic formula. We're not doing voodoo here. It's not a magic formula. It, by the fact that we say in Jesus' name, doesn't guarantee that we can manipulate and control God, does it? And if we think we do that, we better watch it out because we are sinning of idolatry. We're making ourselves our God, and we're expecting God to serve us. And I don't think that's a good place to be. You know what in Jesus' name means? It means on his behalf, with his approval, with his mandate. If I come to you with a little piece of paper in here and a little badge that says IRS, 
and I show it to you. I come to you in the name of the government to check your taxes. And of course, you don't like me, right? If I am a man out in the street and I come to you, I'm just a man coming to you. But if I have a badge from the town saying that I'm a police officer, I no longer come to you in my own name. I come to you in the name of the authority of the town. You see, in the name of means with the authority of, in on behalf of, as a representative of, and therefore with his permission. Now, what if I come to you with a police badge and I start beating you up for no reason whatsoever? Guess what? I end up in court in front of a judge being judged for abuse of power. But we don't think twice when we take Jesus' name out of context and make it to work like a magic formula to abuse as much as we want, to distort as much as we want. That's not the way to do it. That's not the way to go. When we pray in Jesus' name, that means that we have checked and make sure that our prayer is according to his way, is according to his will, it is really on his behalf, and they are working. we are working with him. Not him working for us, but we are working with him because we are the ambassadors sent by him to represent him, not him serving us and representing our will. Does it make sense? So please, if you wish, feel free to say in Jesus' name. But don't ever use it like a magic formula. Don't ever use it to force God to do your will. Do it because you have checked it out and you know that in your request, you are participating in what Jesus is actually doing. You're participating in his will. You're part of what he is doing. So you are serving him, representing him, speaking on his behalf and not the other way around. And that makes sense, doesn't it? In the context here, it makes sense. Because Jesus says, look, I'm not going to leave you. I'll be with you. And just like the Father sent me and I'm doing his work, I'm going to send you and I'm going to finish my work through you. In fact, it says, greater things you will do in my name, meaning on my behalf, with my permission, with my authorization, and with my authority, greater things he will do than I have done. And you know, we're not necessarily talking about super-duper miracles like walking on water or stopping the sun or things of that nature. That's little stuff. What? Yeah, that's little stuff. God is not interested in being a carnival God. God is interested in your life. And you know the greatest miracle that Christ is involved in performing through us is touching the hearts of other people. It's changing the hearts of the, the, the hardened hearts of others through our participation in his ministry, through our becoming a beacon of his love, of his service, of his ministry, of his grace. And as we share that around, other people's hearts are touched and changed, not by us, but by his spirit. That is the biggest miracle, isn't it? And that's what we're involved in doing. And as we proclaim his way, and as we proclaim him, as the way, I should say, as we proclaim him as the truth and as we proclaim him as the life, we are part of that greatest miracle and we are continuing the work that he has started doing greater things that he did in the three and a half years of ministry or in his 33 years of life. Yep, God could do much better by himself, but he has chosen not to. And we can all praise him for that, right? So what is the main point here? Is it all about us? No, it's all about God.
the Father. So Jesus tells us, don't let your heart be troubled. You're going to go through a whirlwind. And in that whirlwind, you're going to be confused. You're going to be bewildered. You're going to be discouraged. Be, you're going to feel like you're being put through the grinder. You're going to feel like you're falling apart, that you're being shredded to pieces. But in the midst of that storm, in the midst of all that, remember one thing. I am your bridegroom, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. I am not forgetting you. I'm not leaving you. I'm just going to prepare a place, and at the right moment, I'm going to welcome you in that place, and we're going to be together forever. In the meantime, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll be with you always, even to the very, very end, every step of the way, because I am the way. Can you see why he's saying that? And can you see the comfort that we can draw from that? When we go through our own whirlwind, when we go through our own trials, the promise is still there. He's still preparing a place for us. He's still making sure that everything is going the way it needs to go. He's still making sure that we have a place in his father's house. And in the meantime, he's still with us. The question is whether we want our way or his way. And his way is not a set of rules. Although he describes us what a Christian life should be like because it's necessary. We need to understand that. But his way is he himself. So hang on to him. When everything feels like it's being lost, when everything feels like it's all upside down, when everything feels like it's, it's, it's just attacking us, hang on to him because he is the way. Hang on to him because he is that life. Hang on to him and as you hang on to him, let him work in you. Do you know why God created us with the ability to experience pain? Because we need that. We need that to trust him. We need that to hang on to him. We need that to rely on him. We need that to learn just like he learned as a human. So let's hang on to him. Let's serve him. And let's realize that as we work in him, anything, anything at all that is necessary, to accomplish his purpose in our life. Anything at all that is necessary to fulfill his will in our life, which, by the way, is the will to bring us to that Father's house. It is his will to give us that wedding that he's preparing for us as his bride. It is his purpose that we have an eternal, never-ending, and awesome relationship with him as he shares with us all things forever. Let's make sure that we hang on to him and that we accept what life brings to us as a way, one of many ways in which God is forming us, preparing us, shaping us into his image. Would you join me in prayer? Father, it is difficult for us in our self-centeredness, in our selfishness, in our self-centered desires to say thank you in those moments when things don't go well. But as we pause and think, as we pause and allow your spirit to guide us, we can only say thank you, Father. Thank you for the good moments. Thank you for the happy moments. Thank you for the wonderful, joyful memories. And thank you for the hard moments, for the difficult times. Thank you for those times that shape us, that mold us, that change us, that transform us more and more into your image. It is not unfair because you, you were willing to suffer and die for us. And you are asking us, as we participate in the suffering of this world, to do it in a way that honors you for good reason, because that is really the ultimate good for us. 
So we praise you and thank you. And we thank you for the fact that no matter what happens in our life, no matter where we are, no matter what people throw at us, no matter how offended we may be, no matter how beaten up we may be by life and by circumstances and sometimes even physically by the people, you will never leave us. You will never forsake us. You will be with us all the way through. And you have set aside for us a place, a place in your Father's house, a place that we long to see because it's going to be glorious and amazing for the rest of eternity. We praise you and thank you and commit ourselves to you. Please give us a heart of service. Give us a heart of hospitality. Give us a heart of love to share your love through us, to share your grace through us. Make us instruments of your will. We ask it all and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.